about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Hi, my name is Maddie. I'm going to be reading from Acts chapter 6, starting at verse 8. Um, And that's on page number 1083 on the Pew Bibles. So while you're turning to that, um, the part of Acts that we're looking at today centres on a man named Stephen who'd just been appointed uh, to care for the poor in the new Christian community. So starting at verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Sicilia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law, They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against the holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then the high priest asked him, Are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even a foot of ground. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at the time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. Your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, for they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said, and afterward they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. We'll pick up the reading down in verse 44. And in the part that we are skipping over, Stephen goes to lengths to show that God's people had rejected God many times. I'm going to keep reading from chapter 7, verse 44. Our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses, according to the pattern he had seen. Having received the tabernacle, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favour and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. 
What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there, giving approval to his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening. Uh, my name is Mike, one of the pastors here at Newtown and Erskineville, and it's great to be with you tonight. If I haven't met you before, I look forward to meeting you afterwards. Um, and we are working our way through Acts, looking at how Jesus has been raised from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and how he continues to be at work in his church, in his unfinished church. And we're going to take a little bit of a break from just walking through the narrative like we've typically been doing. And I want to sort of use Stephen's story to actually work through this issue of martyrdom. Now, I've got a pretty busted back um, today. It's sort of got a pinch thing going on, and so I'm going to have to stand here and hold this perhaps, but it's okay because I'm preaching on martyrdom, so it's not really a big issue. Um, but martyrdom is a challenging thing to, to wrestle with. And perhaps you look at today's passage and you, you take Stephen's story and it's greatly ah, kind of, it brings about great courage as you, as you hear his inspiring story. In fact, Michael Jensen, um, who's a minister at Darling Point, uh, author of several books and used to be my lecturer at college, he once shared this story um, as a chaplain with students in his class that he might give them a taste of a, of a courageous story, that he might kind of help them see what it looks like to even stare death in the face and, and to be courageous. But as he shared this story and as he got to the end, every single student in the class finished with, what an idiot. Why would you die for your faith? All they could see was idiocy. Or how about Salman Rushdie, uh, author of a book called The Satanic Verses. He's um, wrestled, a UK novelist and essayist, um, doing research on Islam and Christianity, uh, and particularly martyrdom. He writes this, only fanatics go looking for martyrdom. Richard Dawkins, 
sees martyrs as just playing the victim, he writes in The God Delusion, the history of early Christianity as we have received it is a history of victimization and pain. And perhaps just to go one step further, maybe you've already made this connection. When you think of martyrdom, you might think of terrorism. I read a really provocative article this week in The New Yorker from 2001. A journalist from The New Yorker had been doing research into the mind of a martyr and came across a failed suicide bomber. So after they attempted to be a suicide bomber, they're still alive, their attempt failed. And the journalist interviewed this person and asked, what is the attraction of martyrdom? Here's the answer. It's as if a very high, impenetrable wall separated you from paradise or hell. And by pressing the detonator, you can immediately open the door to paradise. It is the shortest path to heaven. And so today, as we come to look at the story of Stephen, the first Christian martyr in the early church, I wonder what you see. Do you see courage? Do you see idiocy? Or do you see victimization, violence, and religious extremism? That's our task tonight, to wrestle with Stephen's story. And let me tell you where we're going to land. It's going to sound extreme, especially after that introduction. But where I'm going to land is I'm going to say every Christian is called to an everyday martyrdom. But it's going to be very different to religious extremism, very different to um, victimization, violence, terrorism. But for me to fill that sentence, that phrase with meaning, as I call you to practice an everyday martyrdom as you follow Christ, as you take up your cross, we're going to do a bit of work. We're going to get into the mind of Stephen, see what's going on for him. I want you to see what happened in the early church, how the church got it right and perhaps a little bit wrong sometimes. And then I want to sort of make sense of martyrdom as we live for Christ. That's where we're headed. Um, if you're feeling challenged already, excellent. Let us walk through Acts 6 to 8. Now, as we look to Stephen, he's a guy who's been asked to serve tables, as we read in chapter 6. Um, there was the issue that the early church was growing and rapidly. So we're kind of reading chapter after chapter, a thousand were added to the name of Jesus. The church grew with power. Many came to know Jesus. And as that happens, uh, there's an issue of kind of just being able to serve the people in the kind of, in God's people, in the kind of the Christian community. And so um, there's some grumblings and um, the apostles hear about how some widows are not being cared for. And so like, it's not right that we give up kind of the ministry of the word, the preaching that we do this, but we can't neglect that. We have a godly imperative to care for the poor. And so they say, well, let's, let's look for someone who is godly, who's full of the Holy Spirit and can lead a ministry to serve the widows and the poor, kind of the social justice arm, if you like, to run in parallel with the word ministry. And so they find Stephen, and he's described as a man full of, whole, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, full of faith, full of grace. He's not a guy who said, pick me, I'm your guy. He was chosen because he was these things, because of his Christian character. And after Stephen and his team get to work, Luke shares that the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to faith, now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. 
And it's like every time the church kind of levels up and grows some more, what grows in parallel is opposition. Verse 9, opposition arose. And some arguments break out between the religious leaders of the day and Stephen, who's quickly becoming a leader in the church, but they can't match his wisdom. And he's dragged before the Sanhedrin, this kind of tribunal of kind of a multitude of, of rabbis, of religious leaders, and it would have been a super intense occasion. I wonder what you would have said as you kind of, you know, were seen to be doing a great job of serving the poor and kind of seeing many people come to know Jesus and you're dragged before this religious institution, this tribunal, what would you say? Maybe, we mean you no offense. We are a movement of love. Kind of was true and could have worked. Or maybe, can't you see something remarkable is happening here? You've seen the wonders I've done. Kind of, did you not see Peter's shadow? And the, and the healings? Can't you see what's happening? Let it play its course. Instead, Stephen breaks out into a biblical theology of the history of Israel. A story of God's journey with his people, their rebellion, God's grace, God's provision, their rebellion, God's grace. And ultimately, that God is still God. He can't be domesticated despite his grace. Heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. And as he kind of just is on this biblical theology rant of sorts, he just bursts out in frustration. You stiff-necked people. You're the same as kind of everyone before you. You keep rejecting God. And that doesn't go down particularly well for Stephen. But what is particularly infuriating is that Stephen keeps his eyes fixed on Jesus and God so blesses him with even a vision of Jesus so that he actually sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father and he says, look, I see Jesus. And that's it, they can't handle that. They rush at him with stones. And just like Jesus, he commits his spirit to God and prays for his enemies. Did you read that? As they're throwing stones at him, he prays for his enemies. Do you know what he doesn't do? He doesn't cry out, look at this injustice. He could have. He was unfairly dragged before a tribunal and he's being killed for what? Or he doesn't cry out, avenge my death, my brothers and sisters. He doesn't incite violence. Nor does he have a death wish. In fact, his vocation was about preserving life for caring for people. I don't see any evidence that he cares about, doesn't care about himself at all, as though he thought he was worthless and just good for dying. In no way does he incite violence. I feel the need to say these things because of how moderners perceive martyrdom. There's no victim, victim kind of complex here. There's no inciting of violence or revenge. Instead, he professes the faith he has in the context of the whole story of God of the self-giving of God, of the grace of God, of the rejection of God. It's kind of like Undercover Boss. It's a bit of an old-school TV series, um, but, you know, that idea that the CEO kind of steps down to the workshop floor, kind of gets dressed up on just, you know, in everyday clothes and gets to work amongst the regular people, so to speak. It's kind of, I like the premise of that. You know, imagine if you didn't hate, like the boss and you're kind of just talking in the morning tea room about how you hate the boss and there's a CEO dressed up in disguise. That's kind of like what's happening though because they've been hating on God. They've been rejecting him. They killed the author of life. They didn't even see that coming. And so Stephen just calls it as it is. 
You keep rejecting God. You killed, you murdered Jesus, the righteous one. The thing is, is he's simply witnessing to the reality of God and all things. He's simply witnessing to the reality of God and all things. Do you know what the original word for martyr is in the Greek? It's martus, which means witness. So when Jesus says, I want you to be my witnesses to in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, he's saying, I want you to be my martus, my martyrs. It doesn't mean die for your faith. It means witness. And what Stephen is doing is he is witnessing to the reality of God and all things. See, there's something really ordinary about Stephen. Yep, there's extraordinary stuff too. He's supercharged with the Holy Spirit. He's performing great wonders and signs. His circumstances are extraordinary. He's unfairly hauled before the Sanhedrin, but his testimony is ordinary as he witnesses about God to the people before him. His love for his enemies in a following Jesus sense is ordinary. His everyday sacrificial service towards those in need is ordinary. But what is extraordinary and inspiring is his resolve, his ability to love his enemies while they throw stones at him. Indeed, there were many ordinary Christians who were called to extraordinary lengths to witness to their ordinary faith. If we flicked over a couple of chapters in Acts, we would read about James, son of Zebedee, beheaded with the sword by Herod in AD 44. We would find James, the brother of Jesus, stoned to death in the same way Stephen was under Emperor Nero. And what I find fascinating about James, the brother of Jesus, he didn't believe in his brother while Jesus was doing his ministry. Kind of awkward at the Christmas. Oh, there was no Christmas. Um, but uh, <laughs> I wrote that one in. Um, <laughs> um, but what, so what changed James to, to believe in Jesus? Well, surely it was the resurrection. So that James became a leader of the early church, so much so that he even died for not just his faith, but what he knew to be true, having witnessed Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. We've got Peter, this coward who denied Christ three times, now kind of like filled with the Spirit and on power for Jesus, ultimately dies, probably upside down to be unlike Jesus' crucifixion. We've got Paul beheaded, AD 65, Um, Probably, these are just accounts from early church history, scattered accounts. Thomas, quite possibly speared to death in India. Each one of these people knew Jesus to be true. Knew the story of the gospel to be true, not just because they heard it and believed in it, but because they had encountered personally the risen Lord Jesus. They were courageous in witnessing to the reality that they knew, so much so that they died for what they knew to be true. I find it interesting also to kind of, or kind of just inspiring to read other stories like Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna, modern-day Turkey. Um, at the age of 86, would you believe, age of 86, picking on the old guy, he was hauled before the proconsul, asked to recant his faith or die. This is what he said. 86 years have I served Jesus, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my saviour? 
And with that answer, they took him to the stake, tried to burn him alive. The records say that that didn't work, some kind of miracle. And so they put a spear through his chest. (laughs) Why would anyone go through that? Are they idiots? Are they zealots? Are they kind of, you know, doing the whole cause thing? If you've got nothing worth dying for, you've got nothing worth living for. I don't think that cuts it either, actually. What we have here are simple, ordinary Christians living out their faith. And when asked to recant, to stop preaching, or stop following Jesus and show allegiance to the emperor, or whatever reason their opposers gave, they said something to this effect, and I'm quoting one martyr, I wish to be what I am. I wish to be what I am, a follower of Jesus, a Christian nothing else. See, there is an inner reality of martyrdom that Christians had been practicing well before there was sort of some kind of external uh, experience of that. They were living for Christ and they were dying to self. When they said, Jesus is my Lord, they did so and repented, turned away from everything that hindered and opposed living for Christ. Every hope, every dream put to death to follow Christ. They repented of sin. They sacrificially served. At great cost to themselves, they would love others. They were living for Christ, dying for self. See, they were, the goal is not that we would die the martyr's death. That is not the Christian goal. The goal instead, I think, is to live the martyr's life. To live for Christ, to die to self. To live the martyr's life. And for some of these Christians, they were put in a position where they were told to recant or die. And they chose to keep following Jesus. Their testimony is of courage under fire. It is inspiring. In fact, it was so inspiring that a bunch of the stories were collected. And you can read kind of uh, Fox's um, Book of Martyrs. A bunch of those stories are probably, well, are embellished. Because their stories became sort of symbols of of courage and of hope. And, you know, when you're being persecuted, look to these stories and kind of be filled up and kind of... The problem with that, I suppose, is that we make these stories the goal. In fact, one theologian, Oregon, a great theologian who wrote a ridiculous amount of material, he even encouraged Christians to provoke persecution in the hope that they might receive the martyr's crown. And I think that's where we get it a bit wrong. If we make martyrdom, dying for our faith, the goal, I think we've lost the point. Rather, we are to live the martyr's life. In fact, even Paul says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Live at peace with everyone. That is certainly not provoking persecution that you might attain the martyr's crown. Even Polycarp, um, in the letter that we read about Polycarp's execution, there is a chapter in that that's titled Against Volunteer Martyrdom. So some Christians got it right. But what is true for all of us, when we take up our cross and follow Jesus, we are saying we want to live the martyr's life. We want to live for Christ. We want to die to self. And why we do that? Because this looks ridiculous, doesn't it? Why would anyone take up the cross and follow Jesus? Well, surely this way of life was vindicated in the resurrection. When Jesus rose from dead, 
it was shown to be the glorious way. That God really is real. That your sins really are forgiven when you follow Jesus. That you really have new life in him. That the spirit is alive and well in God's world, calling people to himself. That is why this is not just a foolish way of living, but the most beautiful and glorious way of life as we follow Jesus, living to him and dying to self. I found it really helpful actually to go back to, a, to an old classic. Um, this book's been around for a little while, The Ordinary Hero by Tim Chester. And in it, he's got a chapter called Everyday Martyrdom. At the beginning, I said, I want to land in what it means to follow Jesus. That is that every Christian is called to an everyday martyrdom as we live to Christ and die to self. Uh, and in it, there's some great stuff. I just want to share it with you actually because it helps ground it really concretely that we might actually have an inner experience of martyrdom, independent of the circumstances we find ourselves in. What does it look like to live the way of the cross when I'm tired and someone asks for help? I love how Tim Chester um, takes us back to Scripture to answer that, Philippians 2.17. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. Why would anyone rejoice in suffering for others? Are we not binding ourselves to Christ, his love for us, even at great cost to himself? Are we not tapping into his glory as we do so? What does the way of the cross mean when someone wrongs me? Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Practicing what we have received. What does the way of the cross mean when I open my wallet? Really concrete. 2 Corinthians 8, 7, Paul says, But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that, though that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Do you see the theme here? The continual theme of self-giving, of giving up ourselves, of dying to ourselves, to serve Christ and to love others. What I see in Stephen and in the large array of Christians who did end up dying for their faith is it just a practicing of ordinary Christianity, but under extraordinary circumstances where they were called to live for Christ or, recant and, and, uh, or to, to recant their faith or to die for what they believed, they chose to follow Jesus and keep living out this self-giving, this living for Christ and dying for self. Let's give that last one. I don't know what you're thinking right now. I, I wonder if perhaps as you look to the story of Stephen, as you consider what it means to die to self, I wonder if you're kind of maybe even feeling a bit guilty, feeling quite heavy laden. <laughs> well, firstly, I'm just, I'm reminded of kind of how the early church struggled with this. You know, there was a season during the end of the 3rd century, beginning of the 4th, under Emperor Diocletian, great persecution across the Christian church. And a bunch of Christians kind of buckled at the knees. They handed their Bibles in to get burned and kind of gave up on Jesus, so it seemed. While other Christians kind of suffered dearly and were persecuted for the faith. And when that kind of cloud of persecution lifted, there was a bit of confusion and tension in the church as some of these guys who had handed over their Bibles to be burned kind of wanted back in. And those that had suffered are like, man, we just suffered. Like, what are you doing? 
there was a theologian, Augustine, who kind of helped the church wrestle with this and reminded the church that it's full of saints and sinners. But the one thing that kind of is victorious is Christ, who is holy, who is gracious. Uh, Martin Luther, one of the great reformers, picked up on this to remind us that inside each of us are sinners and saints. We are simultaneously a sinner and we are justified. Why do I say this? Because I don't know what your story is or what you're feeling right now. Whether you feel like you're a failure as a Christian or whether you've kind of buckled in the knees. There is one who is steadfast, who lived the true Christian life, who didn't cave, who went to the cross and he did that for you. Jesus. And so I want you to ask God to, whatever your story is, to to be reminded of the forgiveness you have in him and to ask him to strengthen you so that no matter what happens on Monday, the next week, the week after, that you might keep living to Christ and dying to self. And if you struggle with that, keep praying, keep looking to Jesus. Just as Stephen had that blessed vision of looking and seeing Jesus down at the right hand of the Father, may God bless you and kind of encourage you. And if Stephen's story is going to encourage you, great. But his end is not our goal. Living for Christ, living the martyr's life, that's where it's at. As I was chatting with Kel this week and a bunch of others from church, Kel's my wife if you didn't know, we were kind of wrestling with what it means to live this out. You know, if the kind of living the Christian life is to die to self and to live to Christ, it's so easy to kind of end up with the martyr's complex, as it were, to kind of actually make sort of ultimate self-giving the goal so that when you come to church and you kind of be like, how are how, how you doing? How was your weekend? Oh, I'm so busy. I was doing so much Christian stuff. Hey, I'm so exhausted. <laughs> and then you say, oh, I've had a good weekend. I'm like, oh, I hate you. <laughs> That's, that's kind of, that's messed up Messiah kind of, um, kind of the martyr's complex going on there, that we would make it a goal to just see who's pouring themselves out the most. And we kind of judge each other for kind of like how godly we're being. No, my hope is that just as we share stories and pray and our struggles, that we might not judge each other. We don't know what the other person's sacrifice looks like, how much it costs them, but that we would encourage each other, spur each other on that we might live to Christ, die to self, that we might be living the martyr's life, as it were. <laughs> I don't say all of these things to kind of build you up for an incoming wave of persecution. I'm not really even buying into tonight whether we are persecuted in the West or not. I find that conversation can quickly lead to a victim's complex. In fact, I'm even reminded by a story that um, John Dixon, pastor of my old church, shared where he went to China to spend some time with the underground church and he was in the middle of this epic prayer meeting. And it was going for like three hours. And uh, someone prayed. And these guys were suffering all kinds of things as a result of being Christians. And someone prayed uh, that the persecution would stop. And, and the senior pastor of this underground church kind of shut down the prayer meeting for a moment that he might kind of sermonize what's going on there. And he says, we, don't, we can't pray for that. You don't know what God's doing by refining us in the refiner's fire, in the way that he is using us in persecution, in building our faith in scattering us, just like the early church was scattered and made effective and, and mobilized. The thing is, is tonight we don't want to pray for just a safe, comfortable space. We want to pray that no matter what the circumstances are, that we would be resolved to live for Christ and to die to self, that we might live the martyr's life. Why would anyone do that? Because Christ showed us the most glorious way.
when he died for you and rose again. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.